And welcome back to Get a Clue, the world's only podcast dedicated to the life and works of actor, filmmaker, raconteur. I don't know. I mean, I would call him a raconteur. Cowboy, man of action. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Clue Gulliger. And I'm LB, and I'm here with... I'm the mic. Yeah. I just pointed at you imaginarily. Yeah. I'm, I'm right over here in this direction. <laughs> yes. So we are skipping ahead a bit um, in our plans for Get a Clue because Mr. Gulliger did unfortunately pass away in August of 2022. So we are jumping forward to talk about his later years or like the the last films that he's made and the impact that they've had on not only his life but our lives yeah so this will cover some indie movies and then a big kind of indie movie not really indie obviously kind of but like like the opposite side of indie yeah yeah we'll talk about two of the smallest movies made Mm -hmm. in weird ways and then the biggest indie movie. Right. That's not at all indie and cost hundreds of millions of dollars. But <laughs> right. Is made by that one guy who It's got that indie spirit. Right. <laughs> say that. And these are all from the past, uh, I don't know, five years? I want to say like seven. I think yeah. Tangerine, the first one we're going to talk about, came out in 2015. Mm-hmm. Blue Jay is around that time too. Mm-hmm. And then obviously, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in 2019, mm-hmm. which is insane. It feels <laughs> much longer ago than that. It really kind of does. There, you know, a lot has happened. We don't have to get into yeah. the history of what has yeah. happened in the kind past Kind of a lot years. has happened since then. <laughs> right. That is correct. Right. But before we start talking about those movies in particular, we're going to be going over Clue's last few years and where he was at that point in his life. You know, he was in L.A. A lot of these movies have something to do with California or they were at least made in California. You know, what was going on in Clue's life during this time? You know, he's hanging out, you know, in a revival movie house, making friends. Which is how he even got involved in a couple of these movies. Mm Mm-hmm. And the connections he was making. He was, at that point in his life, you know, just a part of the scenery in that culture. Mm-hmm. And he was given so much freedom and respect during this time. Like, it was an honor to put Clue in these movies. You know, like, all the filmmakers were just so happy to be able to work with him. And, I mean, wh- why would you be? Here's this man who has had this long career that's full of various types of work who you know you have your tv stuff that we've talked about before all sorts of different types of movies he's like perfect in comedies he's perfect in horror fits into a lot of different like if you're a fan of some sub genre or subtype of film you've run into clue yeah absolutely and even making his own films you know there's uh, a day with the boys that short film that he made mm. that was nominated for the palme d'or for short films uh can that year so i mean he's got such a variety of things he's capable of doing and it's so impressive and he's a legend right so these filmmakers are rightfully excited to work with him but what what i'd like to discuss first is since he is 
a man who had such a long career spanning the decades. He's been through a lot and the industry has changed since he got his start. Reminder that Clue was the first contract player at Universal Television. So that that's how long ago his start in Hollywood was. So as an aging actor, there are problems, I guess, people go through as their careers wind down, so to speak. You know, they, they can only be cast in certain types of roles because they're older now, you know. They're not the young, sexy whippersnapper anymore. But I think Clue was able to traverse these changes pretty well. And, you know, maybe didn't exactly let on to what might bother him about the changes. But, like, there are a few interviews where he talks about not liking working in, in film because yeah. he's not really good at memorizing lines. So there's, like, no rehearsals in modern films. You know, you just, uh, you have to get on and do it. Whereas back in the day, you know, there'd be a lot of rehearsal. Like, on the stage, you work on a scene for a long time. But Clue would talk about being a method actor. I don't like film acting because we don't rehearse. We don't have several weeks on the stage rehearsing. And that's what I was brought up on, the method, the Stanislavski kind of thinking. And it's old-fashioned, but that's the way I was taught. So we don't do that in film. And when I came out, I realized, man, I don't know what this is so much. And I wasn't too happy, but, and I never have been real happy with film acting. So I started making, making films, little films. I don't know if I ever really noticed that about him. Yeah, he doesn't have the, you know, when method actor gets said, there's a lot of the negative connotations Uh of Daniel Day-Lewis coming in being a dick to people or something. (laughs) Yeah. Whereas Clue, it was more of just getting into that mindset, it seems, from the way he's talked in interviews. Mm -hmm. And he also taught acting that way. Another part of his the interviews we mentioned where he talks about not liking working on film, he talks about knowing that in this way films are, in the capitalist you know, method of making films that he's not getting to use all of his talents. And most of the actors he's talked about, like training actors and knowing they're going to use a fraction of what they learn because they're just pumping out whatever will make money and not going fully into their skills, not really using all of that. Not honing the craft. Right. Yeah. Or even if they have honed the craft, they don't have the ability to do it because the material isn't that good. Right. It's something he's lamented. Ah, uh, yeah. Clue is really famous for having that actor's workshop in just about everywhere he's lived. Like a, he had mm-hmm. in L.A. and also back in Tulsa, they would do workshops. They would do like camps. You go to like Clue Gullier's acting boot camp, you know, and... Put you to work. Yeah. You learn from the best, right? Yep. Yeah, he talks about how acting is very painful. And I think there's that quote that you brought me. Yeah. He says, you know, there are those that may say it's life affirming and fun, but he sees it as more of a painful, laborsome process. Um, he even said, uh, quoted as saying, almost a killing kind of process. That there's some fun involved, but also a great deal of creative pain in doing something like that. Mm. There's not much happiness in it. Right. But the end result is what you can be happy about and proud of. And I think that's true for most art, not just theater arts. You know, there's visual artists, musicians, you know, and anything like that that's creative, you're going to labor over. And that it's because it's 
an expression of you. And sometimes it's hard to tap into that. Sometimes it's really hard to feel like what you're doing is worthwhile. Sometimes it's really hard to feel like you're, I, I don't know, good enough. You know, I mean, that's that's yeah, something that yeah. people struggle with a lot. And most of the time, you know, w- you know, once you make it through all of that, you have this product that you can be proud of, but also that humbles you. And that's something that's really apparent about Clue Gulliger is that whatever he did, he always stayed humble. You know, you can tell that in how it, how he speaks, his demeanor, like how he addresses people. Like he has such a humility and, you know, there's so much of his work that he can be so proud of. And, you know, we're proud of it. There's so much that can be said about Clue. Now that he's gone, it's such a huge hole in a lot of people's lives, you know, not just his family, but all the people who have ever come into contact with him have a story about him. And that's so cool, you know, and all these people are going to miss him. So after Clue passed away, his daughter-in-law, Diane, posted on Facebook and she says, Clue was as caring as he was loyal and devoted to his craft, a proud member of the Cherokee Nation, a rule breaker, sharp and astute, and on the side, always, of the oppressed. He was good-humored, an avid reader, tender and kind, loud and dangerous. That's a perfect obituary. Yep. Yeah, it covers not all the bases, because like we've said, there's so much to the different things Clue did in his life, but just the range of the man Mm -hmm. as a person, not just as an actor. Right. You know, one thing that tends to be overlooked about Clue is his Cherokee heritage. We talked about how he got his name. Clue is the Cherokee word. And, you know, he's been honored several times by the Cherokee Nation, especially the, the Cherokee in Tulsa, in Oklahoma, like he's in the the Cherokee Hall of Fame over there. Yeah, and that part of his heritage played directly into one of the movies we're talking about here, Tangerine, and the scene he did for that film. Mm -hmm. Tangerine was the first of the three movies we're going to talk about today, uh, released in 2015, made by Sean Baker, who's since gone on to make uh, The Florida Project and Red Rocket. Tangerine was the movie that was famous for being shot completely on iPhone 5 back then. Right. Like, it it was the first... The first movie to be shot completely on an iPhone yeah. was part of the marketing. Right, right, right. And you can tell if you watch the movie <laughs> that it's it's very raw. Both Tangerine and Blue Jay are very improvised movies and Clue has talked about how his scene in Tangerine was mostly improvising and him kind of given the chance to put together his own little scene for his character. Mm-hmm. And that character is known as the Cherokee uh-huh. in the credits of the film. Mm-hmm. Clue does a scene in the back of a cab with this cab driver who's a character throughout the movie and actually talks about what we were just mentioning, how his name is a Cherokee word. So when I was born, my mama looked out the window and she seen a a redbird flying overhead in the sky. Cherokee Indian name for redbird is Mia Mia. So she she called me Mia. (laughs) But I think that's a girl's name, it's not. I'm glad she didn't look out the window and see an outhouse. The story in the movie is slightly different than the real story, Mm -hmm. but it plays into the theme of the film, being a film about transgender people, and how his name of the character is a Cherokee word that sounds feminine, but it's not feminine. Mm -hmm. And it also just gives Clue a chance to kind of romanticize that culture 
that he grew up in. I had to talk about that as he plays a old man character, and I'd say that in the nicest way. <laughs> you know, it's not a Hollywood old man. It's not a, a lot of times in more polished Hollywood movies, you'll see an old man who just walks in and has the smartest thing in the movie to say. Yeah. In this, it's a very raw movie, like I mentioned, and Clue is literally just in the cab like, huh, what's going on? You know, the, the kind of things an old man you run into in your life, you may hear say. <laughs> um, so it's very authentic. It's a very uh, sweet scene for him to be in the movie. And again, just you can tell and you'll have some stuff from interviews with the director, just a chance for them to have him in the movie was enough for them to just let him come in and improvise a scene mm-hmm. that really played into what they were going for throughout this film. Right. And it's cool that he was able to have that understanding too of the thematic elements to that film about identity and how you perceive yourself and how others are perceiving you as well. It's cool that there was that connection because, you know, it shows that we all can understand each other. However different we are, we can still have like connections and be able to relate to each other as people. Yeah. That's cool that that was there. And Clue was a fan of Sean Baker to begin with. So they just happened to run into each other. And Clue was like, hey, I really like your film Starlet. And Sean was like, what? Really? You? Wow, that's so cool. <laughs> you know, like I never would have expected, you know, this this older gentleman to be into my movie, you know. But Clue really loved it and said that he wanted to be a part of his next picture. So that that's really how Clue came to be in Tangerine. And that's really all it kind of took to get him going and then they brought him in and you know talked about how clue loved to improvise and said okay you can just have this conversation with this cab driver and do what you want to do um they ran through a couple ideas and realized this idea talking about his feminine name at birth and making what he can out of it Mm -hmm. played into the theme of the movie and just fit and you know they did a photo shoot afterwards too uh you can look it up like a sean baker clue gulliger fashion shoot (laughs) or whatever Mm -hmm. they did these like fashion photos clues looking pretty sharp and the cowboy hat and cool jacket. I thought that was neat that they were able to do that kind of thing too. Like just really hang out and close the generation gap. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting to me, Clue being in this kind of story that's obviously for an entirely different generation. Uh-huh. But like you said, bridging that gap and also the character he's in the scene with is an Armenian taxi driver, much younger. You know, there's a gap there Then they really wanted to make a scene from the interviews with Baker. He talks about having them have that random interaction and getting to know about each other, which allowed them to just let Clue kind of give a monologue that he always wanted to give and then add a couple more lines and you can see watching the film that clue was into it and gave everything he could for the scene right on john made a cameo too right john gulliger yeah and it was funny i watched the movie and i didn't even think about that but there was a character just randomly in the side of a scene that i'm like that guy looks familiar from somewhere and then when i looked at it later yeah that was john gulliger making a small appearance in the film too just because he was around too they worked together several times. Yeah, okay, so the other indie movie is Blue Jay from Mark Duplass. Yeah, 2016. It's another very improvisational movie. This movie actually was made without a script, according to IMDb. Mm. It's Mark Duplass and Sarah Paulson as 
former high school lovers who meet back up and just kind of have a day wandering kind of a uh, indie before sunrise kind of before sunset whichever one of those pick a time of day Mm -hmm. and clue is one of the only other people in the movie in a small but memorable scene he plays a cashier at like a convenience store Mm -hmm. in their hometown as they're meeting up and they're you know having their moments throughout the movie reconnecting and going through you know oh we used to come in here all the time when we were lovers and get these same snacks and all that and then they're like oh the old guy behind the counter is that the same old guy that's always been behind the counter and that's clue and it's a very sweet moment where he's a character who just is there watching and when they come up you can tell there's that recognition of the person you never really knew from your hometown but the old man who's part of the town immediately like the famous lovebirds you're still together it's just a really sweet moment the movie is based on how much you like those actors is how much you'll like the movie i think (laughs) they're both kind of polarizing seems these days but the scene that clue gets to have there is just a really sweet moment in the film Mm -hmm. it's another one where you know he came in and did one day a work which i'd assume is the same as on tangerine and i wouldn't imagine for once upon a time in hollywood it'd be anything more than that too <laughs> right but you read the interviews with mark dupa specifically talking about it he's a guy who really likes to promote his own stuff mm-hmm. and we'll talk about it and he had a lot of comments about how much he enjoyed working with clue and just how great it was to have him around mm-hmm. yeah he called it clues romanticism helped the movie to line up which stuck out to me because clue does seem like a really romantic guy yeah. you know in not only like a lover sense <laughs> but just the way he speaks about things like it has a romantic tone like in in the sense of how do you explain that because like when you talk about english literature you say the romance novels but they're not like just wuthering heights or whatever right it's it's a passion it's, yeah it's a dedication to what it means mm-hmm. one of the interviews we were talking about earlier where he was lamenting the process of making art and the process of acting there's a quote where he talks about how you know the best playwright we have around these days is neil simon and he's okay (laughs) but we need a shakespeare ah okay like that's clues bar Uh uh-huh he doesn't want to just be in the some good stuff he wants the best Uh uh-huh Okay. So that word romanticism like really stuck out. But if you do want to get into the romance of Clue, you know, one cute story that I really love is how he met his wife, Miriam. They both were in the theater department at Baylor College in Waco. Their first kiss was a stage kiss. After they kissed, Clue got super blushy. (laughs) He talks about how he got so blushy and he realized he was completely in love with Miriam and I think that's really sweet (laughs) so yeah just as a side note yeah and that's I mean the romanticism clue his big moment in that film I kind of mentioned was only moment but he gets in a final line that I don't remember the exact wording but is along the lines of he's kind of shown that he remembers these young lovers and in his eyes as someone in the community you know he just sees them and still sees those same lovers and his final line he says something to the effect of get out of here you guys are gonna make me cry oh um, so he gets to really be that romantic character in the film oh as well oh that's sweet okay so we got three indie movies indie movie one tangerine indie movie two blue jay <laughs> i'm like what's it called uh, indie movie three in quotations yeah wink once upon a time in hollywood 
a film written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. Put it on a t-shirt. Oh, that's who did that. Yeah, yeah. Never, never really looked into it. <laughs> have you seen this film, Mike? <laughs> I have seen this film, okay. yes. Okay. You know, when I went to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in the cinema, I knew Clue was going to be in it. Like, this was exciting because, like, this was, like, the first, like, huge movie that Clue had been in in years. Yeah. And when you say we knew he was going to be in it, but also Clue, in an interview the week of the movie, said, yeah, it'll be out Friday and I hope I'm still in it. <laughs> think I'm still in it. They might have cut me. Oh. <laughs> but they didn't. He is in the movie. How could he? I don't think Quentin could no. in his right no. mind right. or in his conscience. And it seems <laughs> like it's not a very important scene in the movie but i have some theories we're gonna get to uh, okay okay here. well foreshadowing <laughs> so i'm sitting in the theater watching this film and there's leo dicaprio as rick dalton aging hollywood star starting to like be past his prime you know his his career has reached a certain peak and he meets with al pacino which i, I guess he's his manager no pacino's a producer a producer he's trying to get him some italian film right Right, right, right. So the scene in which Rick Dalton meets with this producer, I immediately was like, this character is based on Clue Gulliger. <laughs> like, this has, this has to be based on Clue Gulliger. There's a case to be made for that. There's so sure. many light bulbs went off in my head, you know? Just his background on Western TV, you know, for the most part. And then... You know, just trying to find some footing after the Westerns died down. You know, the clue is on the Virginian, and the Virginian ended in 1968. So, yes. and this and this film is set in February of 1969. Right, it right. So, it, I mean, it lines up perfectly. Clue himself was even like, "Yeah, this is this is about me." <laughs> you know, he acknowledged that like before the film was released. There's an interview with the Tulsa World where he says, "Rick Dalton could have been." me i lived that life where he was a big star and now he's on his way down and that's normal that's a way of life in my world and i've accepted it like this is something that happened to actors a lot clue accepted it apparently did rick dalton accept it not so much right and it's interesting to look at it you know tarantino is not kubrick for example, for example, you watch Room 237 about The Shining and you have all these, we'll call them scholars or nerds, depending on your opinion, <laughs> discussing how every single detail was picked because of a certain thing in, in Kubrick's movies. Tarantino is not that perfect. Kind of, when I started to think about Clue Gulliger matching up with Rick Dalton, the timeline isn't exact, but it's very close. Clue had the tall man in the early 60s, a black and white western. Rick Dalton's western that he was famous for, Bounty Law, was a early 60s black and white western mm -hmm. you watch the scenes where he's acting in i don't know if we ever hear the title in the movie of what the show he's doing a guest appearance on is but it's very similar to sets you'd see on the virginian mm -hmm. and obviously the timeline is pretty close clue had been on that show for a few years before 1969 and obviously wasn't i would almost say his more down period came around the time this movie is set mm -hmm. like the virginian was probably his peak the time mm -hmm. definitely mm -hmm. i would say but yeah the parallel is still really obvious that it could be clue tarantino himself has a list of actors he says this character was based off of there's some names you notice william shatner is one of them some names that are really obvious like george maharis who's mentioned in once upon a time in hollywood as one of the competitors for a role for rick dalton names like tab hunter ed burns is the one leonardo dicaprio liked i honestly don't know ed burns 
Um, <laughs> Not the 90s filmmaker, obviously. No, different. Edwards, oh, okay. <laughs> a name that comes from both DiCaprio and Tarantino is Ralph Meeker, mm -hmm. who's a much more famous heavy actor. That's one that DiCaprio really liked basing it off of. But again, I don't look at Tarantino putting something together and like, yeah, he knew exactly everything was based on Meeker or any of those other mm -hmm. names. There's clearly parts of Clue yeah. in this. Yeah. And they had known each other for a long time, you know, but before Quentin was really making films at all, they knew each other in LA, you know, like there was this little clique of filmmakers that Clue would hang around with and Quentin sort of floated in and out of that group at times. You know, this was back when he was the video store employee where he was <laughs> he was that guy at the video store. Do you think Clue ever rented tapes from Tarantino? <laughs> I hope, feel like it's possible. I hope so. I wonder what would We'll learn about that in Twice Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> Maybe Quentin will write a book about it eventually. Just thinking about like how excited Quentin must have been to like he would be in Clue's presence because you know how obsessed Quentin is with, with, with about. actors and old actors and, and all that. Yeah. But these were the kind of films or that filmmaking group like uh, there's really like I can't name any names other than Clue and Quentin in this group but like Clue talks about like these films were so low budget that you didn't know if you were walking in and out of them. It's just a camera on the street sort of thing. Mm -hmm. That was way before Quentin became like a huge filmmaker. So anyway but you know as you were saying that there are also other parallels to Rick Dalton being Clue. Yeah, one thing that I didn't realize when I watched the film and just caught recently looking at Clue's IMDb page, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a big scene and actually part of the whole plot with Dalton is based around he's doing a guest spot on the TV show FBI, which is fictional. Mm -hmm. That scene is shown in the movie. Him and Cliff Booth, Brad Pitt's character, watch that scene. That's the infamous uh, the meme. The pointing? The gif, yeah, of him pointing at yeah. the screen they're watching the FBI episode that he guest starred in and a actor named Clue Gulliger I don't know if you ever heard of him appeared on a 1971 TV show two episodes as a guest star called The FBI oh yeah so I mean literally we have right there a very obvious parallel I couldn't find apparently not the most well-known show not the most uh hasn't been preserved I can't find it streaming anywhere mm. online or anything to confirm this but it's a two-part episode about a mastermind of a bank robbery they're trying to find and Clue appears in both parts so I'm guessing if I had to bet money mm -hmm. that Clue probably had a part on this show as one of the villains on this show. The bad guy. He was good at being a bad guy. Oh yeah. And he did lean into that around that time of his career too. Yeah. With some TV episodes and that which is exactly what Rick Dalton was doing in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We talked about on the Grumpire podcast recently with Preston Fassel. He was on the show talking about why he does not like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I mean there were several reasons why Preston did not like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I all of his points were quite valid. The revisionist I stuff. Think, yeah, the, the revisionist stuff for sure. The making a bad guy into a good guy sort of thing. Like, he really does not like Cliff Booth. I get that. Yeah. To me, it's almost more of Rick Dalton stumbling into being a hero in the movie yeah. is, is more annoying to me. Really? <laughs> the way I looked at the movie is Cliff is this protector. And yeah, he has the, you know, checkered past that's hinted at through the movie mm -hmm. and never really, he's never absolved of potential crimes in the movie. Mm -hmm. Like there's that, yeah, he's probably a bad guy hanging over it. Right. But what he is to Rick is almost a guardian angel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You look at Rick Dalton throughout the movie, and you're like, this guy couldn't do anything on his own. The point of the movie... To 
to me is, you know, Rick Dalton can't manage without Cliff. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the movie, spoilers, I guess, if anyone hasn't seen it and is listening to this podcast, which seems unlikely, you know, Cliff is injured and off to the hospital and Rick's just like, I'm going to go be a hero now. Everyone looks at me like, yeah, I did that. Right. Anyway, sorry. That was a bit of a tangent on how I view the film. No, it's okay. Well, there's a lot of negative energy in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That's fair. It's weird because it is a romanticized version of this time period just by setting, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's a bright movie. It's a, Uh the music is all upbeat and, you know, the best of that era. Right. Right. It is is capturing a rose-colored glasses type of view of this era, yet it is still full with all this negative energy, like Cliff is a guy who might have killed his wife on purpose. Rick is this guy, like you said, who like can't do anything for himself and his world is kind of crumbling yeah there's a scene in the middle of the movie where he where he's distraught about his performance acting and he's like ranting at himself in the mirror about how he should kill himself Mm -hmm. and he's a drunk and it's just one of those things where most movies you don't see that side of your hero right yeah and they just drop it in there like Mm -hmm. yeah just don't forget he's kind of messed up right and it's not even like an anti-hero like you can get behind an anti-hero most of the time it's like not even that it's just like this guy's pathetic yeah you know definitely both of them have their own pathetic qualities yeah and cliff has that anti-hero kick of you know okay yeah he's a bad guy and stuff but he also just has that obviously there's the controversial scene with the bruce lee thing where it's oh he's tough enough that he can beat up bruce lee which is yeah i get this is fantasy world we get it yeah but just in other ways throughout the movie he's just effortlessly chill yeah whereas rick is a time bomb well you know what i actually like about that bruce lee scene is that it's cut short so like the fight is not over no like we can assume that cliff beats bruce beats in quotes because cliff is acting all cocky about it but that scene's cut short because uh, Zoe Bell comes in and is like, hey, what are you guys doing? Stop it. Yeah. You know? Yep. So, like, honestly, Bruce Lee could have kicked his ass. Well, and that's <laughs> partially revisionist by us, too. Of yeah. Anytime someone brings up a great, I'm going to say a great athlete, because Bruce Lee was, right. you know, an athlete. If you bring up Babe Ruth or Bruce Lee or Muhammad Ali, you know, those revered names of mm. history and sport and entertainment coming together, everyone would immediately say, well, yeah, of course they didn't do anything bad they did the best thing michael Jordan <laughs> yeah. more recently you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah it's part of it you're right people would see bruce lee get hit in this movie and go that's not possible when they weren't even alive when bruce lee was you know fighting competitively <laughs> right. or in movies or whatnot yeah that scene can remain in controversy that's fine i'll let it yeah i think the views of the bruce lee character like speaking in that scene is probably more easier to disprove than the fight part of it you know the the other negativity the big one obviously the manson family right there's a connection there we'll get to that in a second because we need to first say who clue is in this movie which also has sort of a weird negative vibe because clue is a bookstore owner a bookseller who he sells first edition yes rare books right yeah clue said in an interview this was based on a real guy he we don't have any more info than that that Mm -hmm. we can find in any interviews but that's something clue mentioned Mm -hmm. and that he knew him yes it's kind of confusing because i don't really understand if this is a real guy that like that people knew about and... (laughs) 
like was the best bookseller of the era or something. <laughs> yeah, or if it's just like, oh, hey, here's this character. I'm Clue playing this character, and I'm going to yeah. base this character that I'm playing on this guy that I personally knew. Sure. Right? Yeah, there's no, that's literally the only mention of it. I've, yeah. Clue in the one review said, yeah, it's based on a real guy, and that's the only thing about that character <laughs> yeah. in the universe. Right, right. So I don't know. Which makes sense, too, because the character is in the movie for 10 seconds, maybe. <laughs> right. So this is the store that Sharon Tate went to to order an edition of tests of the how do you say it I don't I'm not good at French I, <laughs> that's a great question <laughs> of the Dubervilles, I guess is what I've always yeah, in my head. Yeah, I guess. I, I, Derber, Derbervilles? <laughs> I'm really bad at French. Like, I don't even want to try. That's, I, yeah, no. But the book has a very significant point in the story of Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski, mm-hmm. which is rewritten by this movie. Right. In reality, Sharon Tate did go buy a first edition of this book for Roman Polanski as a gift, but it was actually when they were vacationing in Europe and... And it was the last time they were together, she went back to L.A. right after that vacation and the Manson family happened. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert, she died in reality, if you didn't know that. But this version of the story, the romanticized version, the the revisionist version, has her buying this book from this bookseller, Clue, in L.A. Mm-hmm. And she gives it to Roman and he makes a film of it is that right correct yeah in reality roman got the book from her as a gift and was inspired to make a movie of it i think about a decade later if i remember correctly mm-hmm. natasha kinsky that starred in it and it was a film dedicated to sharon mm-hmm. so that's kind of a weird energy too yeah i have a theory though mm-hmm. so obviously once upon a time in hollywood the big revisionist part of it other than you know the little revisions of oh look how cool this was in hollywood this and this you know different movies different things the moment in the movie where she buys the book from clue in la is the first thing in her life that's really different from anything we know in reality Hmm. so maybe that's where the branch in the timelines happens that's the revision right there oh and clue selling the book instead of someone in europe is what set us on this other branch where the manson family doesn't murder sharon tate and her friends (gasps) who knows oh so it's all clues doing so so yes clue saved the day and stopped the manson family as what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> Go clear. Do I sound like someone who's seen too many uh Avengers Endgame? Oh games? no. May- maybe. Don't even but go there, the mic. Point is, it's Clue. <laughs> Clue is the key. Yeah, that's my theory. So Clue's like the CERN collider in this, the, the particle accelerator thing that causes all yes. the Mandela effects. Clue is the activating force. (laughs) Clue is theoretical physics. Absolutely. Yes. Okay, anyway. But that's not the only connection that Clue has to what Charlie Manson... What goes on in this movie? Charlie Manson. This goes back to that negative energy. (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah. This is real life negative energy. Yeah. So in the movie, the Manson family don't kill anybody. In reality, of course, we know Sharon Tate and her guests at the house that night all died for victims, Mm -hmm. I believe. In reality, there's four people in the movie, so I hope they didn't change how many people were at the house. No. One of the victims, played in the movie by Emil Hirsch, mm-hmm. is Jay Sebring, mm-hmm. who was a very famous Hollywood hairstylist, or just hairstylist in general, but was involved in Hollywood in a lot of ways. Famously was Jim Morrison's hairstylist. 
mm-hmm. was on a lot of TV shows and movies of the hairstylist, actually did a little acting on those sets that he was in, including a guest appearance, one of his few acting roles as a barber on The Virginian oh. with Clue Gulliger, yeah. who he was the hairstylist for. So Clue has mentioned in interviews before that Jay Sebring, the victim of the Mansons in reality, and the character in the movie was his hairstylist. Wow. I remember before this movie came out, when we heard Clue was cast, and we didn't, you know how Tarantino movies are, they're like, oh yeah, Tarantino's making a movie about the Manson family. (laughs) Right. And Hollywood. It was all we knew in, you know, 2017 or whatever. And then Clue got cast in this movie, and I remember both you and I having that thought of, oh, well, Clue had that little connection to the Manson. Is he related to that in the movie? No. No. (laughs) He ended up not at all related to that. But it is just kind of an interesting... When you look at how Clue fits in this movie, there's Clue's role and also the fact, well, okay, there's three things. There's Clue's role, there's Clue as a parallel of Rick Dalton, the main character, which we didn't know anything about back then, Mm -hmm. and then there's Clue as someone who was in L.A. and connected to this victim of the Manson family that appears in the film. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of Clue connections to this movie for a guy who's in 10 seconds probably underselling i think he may have had more than 10 seconds but (laughs) he only had what one or two lines at the most like maybe just one line like it's literally she sees the theater across the street has her name on the marquee and is showing her movie the wrecking crew she goes in hello how can i help you young lady i'm here to pick up the first edition of thomas hardy's test the d'urbavilles i ordered it's under polanski yeah you're talking books there kid oh i know isn't it wonderful i just read it yeah. Getting it as a gift for my husband. Mm. And then she goes in and watches the movie and shows off her feet. <laughs> yeah. So it's a very small moment in the movie, but it's connected to a lot of stuff. Yeah. And Clue went all out for that tiny, tiny role, too. Like, he brought a bunch of his own books and stuff with him. Yeah, he actually helped with the decoration, like, wanted it to look like his own area and brought his own personal items. Mm-hmm. I know one of the people who worked on the art design of that scene had pointed out after Clue died that he, like, brought in pictures of him and his wife to make his desk look real yeah little touches like that that are cool and cool that it's allowed you know just imagine if it was kubrick no how dare you put in a picture from real 1969 <laughs> i'm glad that the clue manson connection was not that he was hanging out with manson though Oh, yeah, no, that'd be weird. I'll say that. Like, if he was the Bruce Dern character, that would have been different. Nothing wrong with Bruce Dern, but I like seeing Clue in a happy, positive light, not in a old man angry light, I guess. You know, that Bruce Dern role was meant for Burt Reynolds. That makes sense. But I think Burt had passed by that time, Yeah. too. One quick note, though, regardless of what we, as a um, film-going public, may think about Quentin Tarantino, Clue had a lot of respect for him. Like, when he was talking about those old days being in that that little clique that uh, I mentioned earlier, he is quoted as saying, in reference to Quentin, he was like, we had no idea that there was a genius among us. So, whether or not you like Quentin, Clue liked him a lot. Yeah, I would imagine most actors you'd meet would see a Tarantino script and like, yeah, we like this guy, <laughs> as opposed to people who sit around dissecting movies and sometimes <laughs> love him or hate him depending right. on how you feel you know i have an actual love-hate relationship because like i recognize that he's like incredibly good at making movies yeah and he obviously has so much knowledge about not only the actual filmmaking process and industry and yada yada but like trivia wise and all that but like 
What I don't like about him is that he seems to like live in a fantasy world constantly and it's like a cable guy sort of situation. He like grew up watching films and television like all the time and it became so immersed in it and like obsessed with it that that's pretty much like every movie that he's made has been like you know people say he's a ripoff artist but it's it's really more like homage. Yeah I've never seen it well uh, sometimes it seems like a ripoff but Mm. I mean I've always looked at it as those became part of his personality Mm -hmm. like those things became what made him. Right. Something we do as viewers. Oh totally. You know some he just is a little more hyper fixated I think is maybe the word but yeah his fixation on all that kind of stuff is always been kind of fascinating to me just from where you hear about movies they're like oh yeah Tarantino was inspired by this movie mm-hmm. and it's just the littlest detail of these characters walking through this hallway this way comes from <laughs> watching these characters walk through this hallway in this movie uh-huh. and Tarantino has always been such a big fan not only of movies but of actors yeah um, which we've known from I mean, from day one with his career, you watch any of his movies and there's an actor that was famous 20 some years ago, Clue Gulliger in this case, uh-huh. um, among others, who he just randomly is like, I gotta have them in my movie because I'm a big fan of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Jackie Brown was obviously built all around that. But even in some of his other movies, I mean, people forget Travolta wasn't doing great before Pulp Fiction. Yeah, he was not relevant. Um, he plucked him out of obscurity. And there are, you know, other examples of that throughout his filmography where he's mm. just like, um, just bring me Sid Hag for a scene. <laughs> yeah. So I've always liked that about Tarantino. But yeah, when you get into the him just making his own version of reality, it can get weird. It is weird. And it's like just letting movie fans go on wild to, to make their own pictures. But like, it's like, I don't want to sound insulting because, you know, there's art to it. You know, yeah. there is absolutely there's value to it. To it. Yes. I, like, I don't want to take away the validity. Yeah. But sometimes it's... It's very transparent. There's something that goes along with it as I know Tarantino is referencing this movie. So I am in this secret cool club. Right. But it's also like common knowledge in a way. So like the secret cool club is, you know, everyone's in it. Literally, there's, everyone's there's tiers in it. of it, I think. You know, you obviously get certain references in Pulp Fiction and those kind of things. But then there's the more people read up and the more people are dedicated to, mm-hmm. you know, dissecting his work you find the the little connections that come up but even then yeah it's you're right everyone's at least involved in the club and it's not like people can't find that info i mean tarantino himself has talked about people that dissect film these days all they got to do is go to imdb and click trivia and they'll get info we've done it yeah but you google stuff you anyone can present as the expert and he's just really good at it yeah there's also like the flip side of that is like just because you watch a lot of movies doesn't mean you know anything about film as well so but i actually don't really mind the revisionist history aspect of tarantino's work i find that more interesting honestly than film homage you know it's always just kind of uh like it makes you feel involved if a film is talking about something that you're already familiar with right and maybe is a new take on it you know You, you get that literature too there are tons of revisionist novels like i mean it's a a thing that's been going on like forever right sure well and it's a great selling point too because you look at tarantino the films he's done this revisionary history stuff with are you gonna go watch if there's just a random movie of manson murders that comes out in the theater depending on you know who makes it maybe right but when you find out well tarantino's gonna do a version of it but it's gonna be different you're like okay that could be interesting just because it's 
you don't know what you're going to expect. Right. Or would you rather watch a random World War II movie that tells the real story or go to Inglorious Bastards and see how <laughs> we flamethrowered Hitler in a movie theater? Yeah, right, exactly. I'm, I'm down with that. Yeah, the, okay, so that's the thing where the, it's the difference between revisionist history, which is a real thing, not in fiction. Like, separate from fiction, revisionist right. history is like... Yeah, we're going from revising novels yeah. to revising actually what really well, yeah. happened. And that's a tricky point, yes. Yeah, because like it, it has happened before. You know, if there's some new facts or evidence that comes out about something, like it can change what we've always thought about it. There's a, a negative version of that too, which is like stuff like Holocaust denial and yeah. stupid, dumb crap like that. But um, <laughs> which is not what Inglorious Bastards is at all. It's the opposite of that. But the point I'm trying to make is like there is revisionist history and then there's fantasy. And what Tarantino's films tend to fall into is more of the fantasy of it. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. It's a bunch of what if. I hate to put it this way, looking at Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but there's part of me that sees what he did knowing him as the film nerd is like, okay, is this just a case where he saw Sharon Tate movies when he was young and was like, oh, she was so great. I wish she didn't die. (laughs) And then made a movie about it. Right. That's actually a good point to bring up is like, is this particular subject to relevant still you know uh, charles manson just died last decade yeah he was rotting away in prison for decades so like this stuff is still fresh in our minds and that's what changed our culture we are still aware that these home invasions changed the way that we like a home security you know (laughs) you know we lock our windows and we lock our doors now because of the manson family yeah you know so like this is still like really relevant even though it was 50 years ago It's, it's still fresh in our minds so like is this you know i hate to say this phrase but is it too soon to like really get a kind of enjoyment or you know what i mean yeah i guess to me it doesn't seem too soon on that but it does kind of uh, i'm flip-flopping here i guess to me it's not too soon it's maybe just too it's kind of sick in a way yes because it's again going back to that whole kind of time branch thing Mm -hmm. what he rewrites here it changes what happened in the movie which is you know really what he's dealing with Mm -hmm. but if you branch history off of that it's like uh so did charlie manson ever cause murders or what happened later Mm -hmm. uh did you know because charlie manson's only in the movie for one scene also i believe like it's mostly follows the followers yeah there's um there's some del- which are based on real characters too right we gotta remember too there's some deleted scenes where manson's in it more manson's in but it more. it's not an interaction with his yeah. followers not to get back into the negative energy of this movie but in this version of reality roman polanski's a character yeah and we know where his uh-huh. connotation and how he's regarded today uh-huh. how does yeah 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 you know i mean like would his reputation be different because what he is accused of happened because he was in mourning because of what happened to his wife and unborn child. Right. You know, or that's that's the... Um, One defense of it. Yes, yeah. yes. So, like, would that have happened? Like, the whole ordeal, like, right. you know, that's that's and something that, that, I mean, obviously, that's, you're going to think about that. Yeah, it's just, especially knowing it's Tarantino. Mm-hmm. He's not that perfectionist, like we talked about, but he 
because I'm sure sitting there thinking, man, if Sharon Tate hadn't died and Polanski did do this and that, and you know, Tarantino has proven that he likes to rewrite not just history, but cinema history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Rick Dalton is a big part of that. Yeah. And it's, it's um, sometimes, you know, there's a difference in you know, leaning into escapism and then just like forgetting about any kind of responsibility. Yeah. If you think about this story too much, it really leans into the trying to get out of responsibility. I, it's a little perverse. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I, I don't know if the film is like really successful because of that. You know, Inglorious Bastards is so successful. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I, but also like we're very far removed from World War II. I mean, that, right. that's something that still affects us, but it, it's not something that we lived through. Well, and it's not a debatable. It's like, yeah. oh, this is a movie where they change it to we killed Hitler and everyone's like, great. Okay, yeah. Cool. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Whereas I'm not saying we should have let Manson kill people, mm-hmm. you know, clarifying that, but <laughs> it's not like this is a complete rebuke of that all ever happening. That element still exists mm-hmm. in the world of this movie, hasn't been eradicated, just has been cut off by a struggling actor and a stuntman. Mm-hmm. And the- World War Two. There's not much, too much of a ripple effect. I mean, of course, there would be a ripple effect of like us killing Hitler. Right. You know, that's just a victory. Stop. Right. <laughs> you know, like the ripple effect with the Manson murders. Uh, we just talked about it, what, what it would be. Right. You know, right. you can speculate. Smaller scale. Uh-huh. But it's also just not really clear. Yeah. Yes. This movie does. It has that. The ending is meant to almost be, to me, it's shot overhead, like him going through this gate up to meet with Sharon Tate and stuff. Mm -hmm. It's like, when I first saw it, I remember my thought was, it's like, oh, so he's like accepted into heaven now. Like, it's that that image of, oh, come through the pearly gates and you're all better now. Yeah. You know, I I really did not expect to be so emotionally involved in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. (laughs) Yeah. But it gets you there. It's at least a movie that, I mean, it's Tarantino and he knows how to get you engaged. Aged, mm-hmm. And he knows how to get you. And it's probably his most open-ended theoretical movie. Yeah. Which is good in a way. And as we mentioned, leaves some bad thoughts too. Mm-hmm. Um, which isn't a bad thing, you know? Problematic characters aren't right. a reason to cut off something. Yeah. It's just definitely he's always been a little more defined. Uh-huh. But still on the subject of revisionist cinema, there's a book that Tarantino put out or is putting right. out, right? There's two books. He wrote a book version of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I've been meaning to read for two years and still haven't, so apologies. <laughs> but that book is not entirely lined up with the movie, you know, as its own alternate stuff. But then also, we talked about earlier in this episode of, well, is Clue Gulliger and Rick Dalton a parallel? Is that what it's based off of? Mm-hmm. And interestingly, Tarantino has a book coming out that spells out the career of Rick Dalton even following the events of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm. And when you get into that version of reality that Tarantino's made in this book, or at least what's known of it yet, mm-hmm. it's pretty wild. I'm just going to warn you in advance. All right, I'm going to buckle up. And this is a great example of Tarantino changing things on multiple levels. Okay. So What you got? Obviously, in line with the ending of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Rick Dalton's career gets a boost from what happened in this movie, which, you know, you, I think, assume when you watch the end of the movie. But it's not a huge boost. Uh, among the things that are mentioned is he had a big guest star on an episode of Mission Impossible, mm. a lot more guest spots in TV shows throughout the 70s, and a few movies throughout the 70s. And Tarantino has gone through a lot of details. I'm not going to like read off the whole filmography of Rick Dalton 
Dalton that he made up. Okay. But what's interesting about it is he has Rick Dalton appearing in fictional movies, which makes sense because he's a fictional character. Mm -hmm. He has Rick Dalton appearing in actual movies, replacing real actors. Oh, really? For example, he has that Rick Dalton appeared in the film Grizzly by uh, William Girdler playing the Andrew Prine role another actor who recently passed away, R.I.P. Then he has, uh, in the late 80s, Rick Dalton appearing in the film Coming Home in a Body Bag, which is a fictional movie that is a plot point or brought up several times in the real world movie True Romance. Oh. Written by Quentin Tarantino. Uh Uh-huh. Throughout that movie, one of the characters played by Saul Rubinek is a producer that made the movie Coming Home in a Body Bag and Christian Slater's Clarence in that movie brings it up. Coming Home in a Body Bag is my favorite movie of all time. I mean, after Apocalypse Now, I think that is the best Vietnam movie ever made. So, in Tarantino's new revisionist version of cinema, that's a movie that Rick Dalton appeared in. But the more interesting part, too, that gives some feedback on where Rick Dalton's career went later compared to Clue, Clue in the 1980s got a second boost to his career in the horror genre. Mm-hmm. In the fictional universe created by Tarantino in the films of Rick Dalton, in the late 70s, the beginning of the 80s, Rick Dalton starred in a film written by Cliff Booth, basing their relationship at this point off, among others, Burt Reynolds and Hal Needham, his oh, stuntman okay. who became a director. Mm-hmm. So he envisioned Cliff Booth becoming a Hal Needham type and making a movie called The Fireman, where it was a revenge thriller. Sounds a lot like the film The Exterminator, oh. and then The Exterminator 2 with uh, Robert Ginty, I believe is the actor, uh-huh. where he had this cult hit come out. Rick Dalton plays the lead in this movie, The Fireman, which then has a bunch of direct-to-video sequels and gets him famous again in the 80s. The kicker that ends this fictional version of Rick Dalton's career that is known at this time is that his career culminates, at least according to this story, in 1996, mm-hmm. when the Hawaiian International Film Festival does a full trip to the films of Rick Dalton and the career of Rick Dalton. And Rick Dalton gets to go there and be honored and be on a panel with two hosts. Mm-hmm. Now, if you had to guess in 1996, who do you think would be like the most honored people that could be hosting a tribute to an actor? <laughs> Quentin Tarantino? Quentin Tarantino <laughs> and Roger Ebert oh, host God, really? the career retrospective of Rick Dalton <laughs> at the Hawaiian <laughs> International Film Festival in the book written by Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> you kept this information from me. You were like, don't look at it. Don't look at it. Because, you know, like yes. you would just give me your reaction. But yeah, okay. What a jerk off. <laughs> That's I hilarious. Knew as soon as you heard that, you were going to be like, I hate Tarantino again. Oh my gosh. That's <laughs> hilarious. Wow. Quentin. So, yes, Rick Dalton survives once upon a time in Hollywood, and his big reward at the end of his career, <laughs> he meets Quentin Tarantino and Roger Ebert. He meets God. <laughs> wow. Okay. Okay. The funniest part is once you get, once you read all that other stuff and you get to that, mm-hmm. as soon as I asked you the question, you knew, oh no, <laughs> he put himself in the story, didn't he? That's Tarantino for you. I was hoping that he would be in a film like written by Roger Avery, but yeah. no. They did make sure to point out the fireman, uh-huh. the person that he is avenging in the fireman was a young Samuel L. Jackson. Oh. Yeah. Well, that's nice, I guess. Yeah. That, that whole thing like reminds me of 
of tape heads where, yeah. where for the EPK of the film, they made that whole fictional account of the swanky modes where they're like, yep. this happens in this year and they play for Queen Elizabeth and, you know, whatever. Yeah. And he turned a whole two books into it and a movie. Wow. Of here's here's my rewrite. Winston. And that's just what we know about the book that's not even out yet. Who knows what else is going to be in that film as a big golden book. <laughs> I say that with fear on my face. Y'all can't see it, but as soon as I said that, my eyes dropped and my mouth uh-huh. dropped a little like, oh, no. This is so funny because it is like so totally something that like we would make up, you know, like yeah. th- like any. It's fan fiction. Yes, it is. It literally is fan total fiction. Total fan fiction, but somehow it's more legit because it's Quentin Tarantino writing it. I don't know. Is that the appeal of Quentin Tarantino? It's because like we feel like he is one of us. That or we feel like he knows more, which to be fair, he oh, surely he does. does. He I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna challenge Tarantino to a, you know, oh. brain off. Oh, hell no. He ab- no, he knows. Yeah, he absolutely knows more <laughs> than I do about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just fascinating how much we let him go uh-huh. with it. Versus, I mean, can you think of if Christopher Nolan wrote a fictional version of something, people would be like, uh, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Uh, I'm going to get mad Nolan people probably, but. Oh my God, how dare you. I think I would read a novelization of Memento. Yeah. Might... But a rewrite of the history of the Memento character <laughs> following the movie? That would Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know, maybe. I don't know why I have this in my notes, but I'll go ahead and ask you, do you think Clue ever met Elvis? Um, sorry, I'm cocking my head to the side and thinking. <laughs> Maybe? I I feel like Clue's the kind of person that would bring that up. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> you never know. Clue's more of a country guy. Maybe he wouldn't care if he met Elvis. Maybe he'd rather meet Johnny Cash, or who's earlier than Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings? Yeah. What about if it was Tarantino's Elvis? Yeah. I mean, he already had Val Kilmer kind of playing Elvis in True Romance. Mm. So even though Clue had these small roles and these three films that does not discount the lasting impression that clue made on everyone in his life and movie fans and you know tv fans i mean people are still going to western conventions <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. like and still talking about Riker from the virginian from the virginian yeah you know like you know somebody is still Billy think- the kid he made him famous too yeah <laughs> um, maybe not entirely but he was billy the kid billy the kid made you famous Right. So huge, like, lasting impression. He's got this enduring legacy that's going on. And, you know, it's really cool that he got to spend, you know, his last days with such a community that admires him and accepts him. And hanging out at the New Beverly, where he was treated as uh, not like a god, but like, you know, he was treated as royalty, which he is. Yeah. He is a, a kind of royalty. You know, they, they um, gave him his own seat dedicated to him. You know, that's the place where he went when he was coping with the death of his wife, Miriam. Mm-hmm. It was a very important part of his life, and he was able to share it with this community of people. And that's very lovely. Yeah, and I think also it's worth remembering, I mean, the three movies we've talked about have clue in a few minutes of screen time. Most people that watch these movies aren't always going to have that, you know, other than and, oh, Clue Gulliger, or even not even, you know, recognize him for mm-hmm. younger generations. It's But I, the impact he had on these sets and around these filmmakers mm-hmm. is the legacy, I think, that he'd want. Mm-hmm. Just how a few minutes of screen time brought him into these sets and touched people's lives. 
for a day. Yeah. And that, I think, is a real testament to Clue as an actor, a character actor, and a person. Yeah. There's really not much more to add to that. He will be missed by us, yeah. by fans, but the people around him, the people in the film community that valued what he could bring to them so much. I know that's where his legacy is going to be. And that's, you know, the legacy we're happy to be here talking about. Yeah. And we will continue. That we will. Get a Clue is brought to you by Ouch My Ego. Visit ouchmyego.com where you can find more great shows such as What Did We Just Watch and Vincent Price's Laugh. Each episode is researched and performed by LB Bargeron and The Mic. Visit tmdfps.blogspot.com for The Mic's double feature picture show. Special thanks to our illustrious producer Andrew Bargeron for designing our super rad logo. Visit jemetsco.com for more of his fancy pants artwork. And last but not least, a big thank you to the brilliant Adrian Gober for writing and performing our amazing theme song. Thanks for listening and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Get a clue!